don't know. We'll just take off with like, gonna win. Hey man. Welcome back everybody. This is the community engagement episode. Get on the Discord if you're not already there. I'm pretty sure everyone's there now. Everyone's there. Is Apollo No, he's not. He, he's the one right there. Yo. Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> How is it hanging? Oh, it's going great. We, uh, we apologize for the uh, slight echo in the room, if it's audible. I, I think the, the setup sounds good today. Yeah. Well, we've got a, a different room today. We're in a more cozy environment now. We got pushed out of the original location. Well, we've got a new one on the way. By management. Mm. Yeah. So we're in like a glass cage being observed. It's like a theater. If only we were being observed. We, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, you'd like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Disgusting. But this is the community engagement episode. It is. So we're going to reply to some messages. All our people on Discord. Maybe just one message from... Pretty much just one. The one person that likes us. But he, but Juggling Jason's always gives us great content. He does. Shout out to Juggling Jason. I look everything he says up. Well, you came across that post that he put in some yeah. repo. He yeah, opened yeah, some yeah. issue. He, so uh, we, I was having an issue with... Um, uh, serverless deploy minus F and then the function name, uh, deploying the code, but not updating the, the alias. Mm. So the actual thing that was running uh, in the account didn't change once you add a provisioned concurrency alias, yep. which is like incredibly unintuitive and there's no warning and there's no way to understand that without just like being like, wait a minute, I definitely deleted the entire code base. <laughs> Nothing should be running. And for those uh, new listeners who weren't around last week, if you want to l- learn about what James thinks about cloud formation, just have a look at last week's episode. Yeah, heck, cloud formation to death or whatever. I don't know. But so I'm sick of it. Well, let's talk about it. So I've, I'm deleting it actually. Anyway. Well, exactly. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. But we should read. Do you want to read Juggling's post? Yeah, yeah, go. All right, I'll read it out. Word for word, but. Um, he, he's uh, he's asking about, oh, are you reading it? I'll read it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because you probably want to answer it. Yeah, of course. I'm not qualified. You, not you com- role play. Not competent enough. You can role play. I'll be him and you be you. Okay. Uh, just listening to the new one, exclamation mark, must have been pretty good. I am wondering what if, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on tools like this one, Pulumi. Any thoughts? Any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's new. Uh, everyone likes new things. I don't like new things, though. I, I like old things. You're a um, traditionalist. Yeah. You I, only I read the like, old programming books. Um, I, I do really like the idea of configuring stuff with TypeScript or typed languages instead of just, like, trashy YAML. But, um, like, an imperative language like JavaScript is not necessarily... I, I don't think necessarily the right way to go about it. I think HCL is actually pretty good so what's pulumi i'm just googling it while you it's like you're a, one step ahead of me it's like a competitor to terraform in a way oh right uh they have a lot of more cool hypey features mm. um at the end of the day uh so i think you can use go python uh typescript javascript okay uh and then at the end of the day you run a command and it outputs uh like json essentially right so it, like pulumi itself like you run a bit of sta- a few statements like uh, API gateway, give it a name, whatever, and then it like creates a JSON thing, and then it it's the same sort of thing as 
Terraform and CloudFormation, right? Like yep. at the end of the day, it's making a schema and then it's applying it to uh, your cloud provider. Yep. Pulumi thinks they have the better way than TypeScript. Or not TypeScript, Terraform. Terraform. <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't know. It, there's some interesting stuff. Uh, I've not run it on anything prod. I've used it when uh, like it, it first came out and everyone was talking about it on Hacker News. Yep. But it wasn't very interesting back then. The, the, I, I read a post that the, the dev was saying that they're going to... One of the biggest issues for me is that Terraform is like... It feels more like an open source tool and yep. it's very easy to add a provider, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So like I was saying in the last episode, I've used it to manage Keycloak, Postgres schemas, AWS, GCP, yep. all this stuff. Yep. Pulumi, however, when I used it, um, was not... It's only a cloud platform tool. So like you use exactly what the developers have built or you don't use anything, uh, right? Gotcha. So anything else you want to add, you don't get. They say they release faster than uh, the Terraform providers, but so many companies use Terraform. I don't think that's going to be the case. Yeah, sure. Um, Pulumi also seems a bit scammy because they want you to, not scammy, I don't want to say that. Mm. Like it's good that they're looking for money, but they want you to um, by default use their hosted platform. Ah, I can say that here. Yeah, it offers the... It offers their own hosted platform, but Which, then it says prefer to manage your own backend, try open source. Yeah, I just don't like that idea. Yeah. Like uh, Terraform is very good in that sense in that it feels like an entirely like it's, uh, Well, it's the other way around, isn't it? System. It's open source first. Yeah. Whereas this is like use our platform, but then yeah. you can yeah. open source it. Yeah, if exactly. You want. So I'm pretty sure, like I don't, I haven't dug too much into it because like those sort of things, like when I see a pricing page on a tool to manage infrastructure, I just like, I'm not that interested. Because I'm pretty sure they'll just they'll end up pivoting some way, and they'll just close everything off. Or, That's uh, my concern. Or AWS is going to release EPS Elastic Pulumi service, yeah. and then <laughs> and just well, take it, the open it does source code. Other and, backends. Yeah. So you can use S3. Oh, yeah. But like, it's very obvious they want you to use that, and that's like what they're pushing is like pay us to manage your state. Which I, I like. I don't know. I don't like the idea that if they wanted to have like oh. Or if you wanted something easier, we'll manage this. Yeah. Right. That would be it. So you were telling me last week Terraform uses the AWS CLI to make all the changes. How does this one do it? Well, HashiCorp doesn't have, not to my knowledge at least, they don't have like a system that, um, they don't. They definitely don't have like a cloud system where like they recommend you to like sync your state to. Yeah. Right. Uh, by default, it actually just stores all the state locally, like in a file. And then you, yep. you could say, oh, put it in a bucket instead. Yep. And if you want to do like um, state locking, so if two people run Terraform at the same time, only one will get it. You use like a transaction lock using a DynamoDB table. You just oh, give yeah. it the name of a DynamoDB table and then it'll use that to prevent two, um, ter- like two people running the same thing and stepping on each other's toes, gotcha. that sort of thing. Whereas, yeah, I mean, I haven't configured the, I've only used the um, cloud one. For Pulumi, I haven't set up an S3 bucket, but uh, like if you look up uh, S3 bucket Pulumi, like it's not they don't make it obvious. I don't think. So does Pulumi like does it? uh, It wouldn't be exporting cloud formation then, would it? No. So it's it's the same thing. So when you think about Terraform and cloud formation, and there's one thing all of these systems do is that they output output a flat state like an expected state file. That's what they all do, except for like Ansible, obviously, but that's a different class. But all of these ones that try and get your infrastructure into a state, they build this big JSON or YAML, whatever, data blob, and then they diff that, and then they try and apply it, essentially. 
So they have a different system to the way Terraform does it. Uh, I don't know what it actually looks like physically. Yep. I think um, Pulumi is a, a, like they've had the benefit of hindsight. So like uh, Terraform, for example, doesn't, if I recall, Terraform doesn't have any way to uh, encrypt the or hide secrets inside of the uh, state file. But I believe that Pulumi, like that was one of their first things that they did. So, but uh, I mean, that's a benefit. Mm. So if you want to mark something as sensitive, I don't know what the process is, but one of the most interesting things on it that um, I definitely wouldn't use is uh, uh, I was looking at, because um, I was migrating our service, our uh, our service to use Yarn2, and I was looking for alternative deployment systems other than serverless. Ooh, Yarn2, we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about it later. Yeah. However, I was using, I tried Pulumi yeah. um, for that as well. And they have a system where you can actually inline, you say uh, like you, you say AWS API gateway and then you say event handler and then you actually just add the callback to the actual code, like the infrastructure. Yeah, It's sort of interesting. Um, I don't think I would do that because that seems like uh, maybe for like a Lambda Edge, one of those like really simple ones where it's like you set and you forget and it doesn't really matter what it does. But uh, yeah, I don't know. doesn't seem too good. I don't know what the build process is. They, they're, they, they, like if you read their Terraform versus Pulumi um, page, uh, like I really don't see a benefit. Like the benefit to me is even if I built my application in a way where I could interfa- interface with it with Terraform, like I could manage the state of my application, like literally the business objects yep. inside of my, whereas with Pulumi, I have to rely on these developers to build uh, providers. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, what juggling says is... Uh It'd be nice to have the same language that you deploy whatever code you're kind of deploying. Yeah, that's what they said in Pulumi as well. But I mean, I don't know. I, I think um, infrastructure and the application itself are different. And uh, I already know people get like there should be a division between like the way that you deploy something and what the thing actually is. I don't think like merging those two is necessarily healthy, mm. like code independently of your deployment system. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel like it would lead to some bad practices. If it's just a quick throwaway, if you're like one of those companies where they don't give a fuck, then just like make your shitty microservice, <laughs> merge it with Pulumi and then yeah. just slap it into prod. Yeah. That's fine. But I yeah. might give it a little bit of a try. Yeah, give it a shot. It's worth playing with. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the future. I don't think I'd move off of Terraform. Yeah. Especially considering, yeah. Pricing page sort of puts me off any, any product. Mm. So the next thing Jugglings goes on to says is, well, he talks about having the similar issues that you had with the single function deployments, which you touched on before. But then he uh, he pulled up what I'm guessing is like, maybe he wrote a Medium article somewhere or yeah, looks like he's pulled some. He's probably written this at some point. He's written it somewhere, yeah. And he goes on to talk about, um, well, Everyone should hop in the you Discord. You can see and this read on it, Discord. Yeah, hop in the Discord and read it. But June sixteenth, twenty twenty one, on our Discord. But uh, basically, oh yeah, he talks about like what you were saying before: version lambda updates with provision concurrency waiting, uh, waiting to die before the deployments go through. Well, you could probably speak more to that anyway. Well, the whole thing, pretty yeah. much everything that he said there, I felt like I was re- reading something that I had written. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Because pretty much, yeah, everything in there is 
exactly what I felt. Like he's talking about uh, doing like a 15 plus minute deploy and yep. then having one thing at the end fail and then okay. like fucking cloud formation saying, uh, no, roll the whole thing back. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, and then the provision concurrency thing in cloud formation, uh, I'll, I'll just mention briefly, I, uh, I moved from, I, I recently did a, a bit of a spike over the weekend to move us off of serverless because I'm so fucking fed up with serverless and CloudFormation what? and all its, what? Yeah. <laughs> Why are you surprised? <laughs> the whole last episode was about this. Yes. I'm so sick of their bullshit. And uh, so I just tried making like a little Ansible book to just like run the AWS CLI commands. I can now do a deploy, um, build time included in all of like two minutes again. Yeah. And that's including the provision concurrency alias, everything. What happens so. if something goes wrong and it needs to roll back? Does it have that ability? Or like I mean, what does that even mean there? Like well, you know, if something goes wrong, I don't know what can go wrong. Is it possible? Maybe it's not even possible. Uh, I would like to know what it is that you would like to roll back. Most of the time in a failure case, you would manage the rollback yourself unless you have, or you would need to, because there's other stuff in a deployment. It's not just the function code. Like I have migrations, I have the front end code that's being deployed, maybe not at the same time even, that sort of thing. Yep. And if this part of the deployment is being rolled back, I probably need other things specific to that deployment. Someone does sort of need to nurse stuff when you have like uh, a, a three-man team. So, Is it possible that you could be waiting for a resource to be deployed and there's some a slight delay which impacts one of the other resources you're trying to do in later what? down the Ansible? script uh i don't know what you mean uh so like you're deploying resources yeah in some kind of order mm -hmm. and so what happens if like is it is it sequential where it like it's, well, it it's goes a, through it step it's by step like a, and a, a shell script right. so if you want to roll back to an old version so i'll just spoil it but uh, i moved to using container images instead of zip files for uh the function so yeah. one of the advantages of that is if i need to roll back to an old version i just type in the name of the tag for the container or for the image uh, and then it'll roll back to that version. Uh -huh. So, and uh, the difference in deploy time is immense. Mm. Like, yeah. And we don't even, we only have like what, uh, eight functions because I'm using a macro, mm. a, a macro Lambda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you're going to have to tell me more about the Lambda containers too. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to that. We've, what do we have? One more. So then he goes on to say, we're working on latency-sensitive app currently. So the ProvCon issue was killing us for a while. Yep. And yeah, provision concurrency just ruins serverless. If, if you actually need that, then just don't use serverless, seems like the answer. Or CloudFormation, really, probably. Oh, here's a question for you. Before you merged your code into one macro lambda, what was your approach to DB connection polling? This is my first project with serverless using cloud-based DB. Prior to that, we were using Postgres. Luckily, we realized the avalanche coming our way and we'd done some load tests on the API at a 90% fail rate just because each of the own lambdas was spawning its own connection. Yeah, um, this is this is something that bites you eventually uh, if you use a relational database, regardless of the system. Uh, I've had uh, connection pooling bite me in uh, Kubernetes, scaling too much, um, yeah. The, essentially, the answer is uh, you could either use, uh, what's it called? Their Aurora. Aurora has an HTTP API. Oh, yeah. So you wouldn't actually need to maintain a connection. That sucks because HTTP is kind of slow relative to Postgres if you're doing a lot of lookup, uh, relative to TCP if you're doing a lot of lookups. Yep. 
Um, but the solution that I'm pretty much set on uh, is just a RDS proxy, uh, which is like, it's not super expensive and it essentially just removes that entire problem. So we, we did a load test. We used Postgres with RDS proxy in front of it. And uh, I was getting like 500 transactions per second very, very easily. So uh, I could have scaled up well beyond that. Um, and that's w- this is in uh, non-prod, which has a tiny database. Uh, yep. So it doesn't even, it does not have 500, uh, you know, uh, connections available. Yep. But uh, the amount of connections to the database actually didn't change during that load test because uh, the proxy itself manages the connections and uh, it sort of maintains its own pool and will scale independently to, to match your serverless or whatever connections. Uh-huh. Another benefit of RDS proxy is that uh, it uses IAM-based uh, authentication. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can actually give your Lambda function identity as the credentials to access the database. Mm-hmm. So you don't actually have to create the user in Postgres and give it the username password. Oh, nice. You can actually just create a token yep. and then use that to access the database. Mm-hmm. The issue is they last about four minutes, so you have to refresh them. Uh, Typeform, one of the reasons why I picked Typeform is because they specifically support this. Oh, really? Uh, they also have a module that lets you support the HTTP um, RDS, uh, like Aurora uh, oh. system. So, oh, that's good. Yeah. So we haven't had any problems with it. Uh, at other, other places, we've had to put something in front of it, so an RPC layer, so like a thrift service in front of the database, and then that thing is fast enough to just reply with the data that's required and then uh, the lambdas can scale independently. So, yeah, that's that's about it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, we so in terms of opening the the Postgres connection, <clears throat> we actually open the the connection once at the start, and then we maintain it. And then uh, if if a network issue has occurred, it'll uh, like try and uh, attempt one reconnect, and then it'll die if it, if it, if the old connection is stale. So. Each of them will maintain a connection, but it doesn't really matter because RDS proxy. Also, one other thing, RDS proxy reduces the amount of time that it takes to open a connection. Mm-hmm. So even if you wanted to open and close the connection at the start and end of the Lambda, it's actually very cheap to, like it's milliseconds, like a couple milliseconds to actually maintain it yeah. or open and close it versus otherwise, uh, like just Postgres on its own normally takes like 20 milliseconds or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. So That's was RDS proxy designed for this specific use case? Or? Yeah, for this and anything. So essentially you have to think uh, when you have an infinitely scalable like front end, yeah. almost always something funnels down to an entirely unscalable system at the back end. Yeah. So this is the solution specifically for RDS that lets your infinitely scaled front like Lambdas or Kubernetes services or EC2 instances connect to Postgres yeah. Uh, funnel that down into something that could be small and not able to manage all those connections. Sure. Yeah. And then I suppose if you're getting to the levels where there's actually not enough connections available, do you have to... I don't... Scout, like I don't know if you can do that with RDS proxy. Yeah. I'm sure there's like, you know, some law of thermodynamics that like <laughs> there are too many connections, <laughs> but uh, I don't think you'd hit it. Uh, like that's the point of RDS proxies that it'll scale according to your demand. So, so then the next bottleneck is how much, how many read and writes to the Postgres database? Is yeah, so then it's like a normal uh, database uh, problem, right. like reducing your indi- like reducing indices and uh, yeah. Yep. 
that sort of thing, redu- removing foreign key constraints, all that sort of stuff. Okay. If, if you are hitting a, a right bottleneck. So uh, I don't want to go on too much of a, a bottle, like a, uh, what do you call it? A rabbit trail. Yeah. I'm so tired today. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to uh, ask you another question too. Keep going, yeah. Yeah, but um, when, you're, uh, when you're tuning the performance, like there's either read performance or write performance that you care oh, about. Right. And they're both tuned in Postgres in particular in entirely different ways, right? Because if you're re if like you have a lot of index- indexes, then you're going to have slow writes but fast reads, mm. right? Those are, so yeah, anyway. Yep, so your bottleneck could be anywhere. How much performance tuning can you do on Postgres before you need to start looking at other options in terms of do you like do you shard Postgres databases or like vertical scaling and horizontal scaling? Do you still do that or? Well, what do you want to do? That's that'd be my question and yeah. like what's the scale? Yeah. Like just saying performance tuning is like too too broad too because broad, like yeah. I said, read versus write. Like if you just need more reads uh, you can actually just make a read re- make a read replica uh, of yeah. the Postgres database, yep, yep. which isn't really sharding, I wouldn't say, because yep. you, all your writes are still going to one place yep. and then fanning out. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, typically you could just reduce the size of the database or split the schema in two, that sort of thing. That'd yep. probably be better, and then just scale uh, the size of the instance instead of the number of instances. You won't. I mean, we're, we're in Australia, like. If we had the entire population of Australia using our app, we would be fine with well, Watch this max. space, all right? <laughs> yeah. It's it's hard to get over that limit. <laughs> if you're doing something where it's like uh, like time series data, yep. you would use a time series database. But if you're doing like transactional, like uh, interacting with a user, filling in forms, that sort of thing, then you're never going to really need to dip out of Postgres. Yep. But yes, there are like ways to shard it. But those come with a lot of downsides and other performance issues. Everything's a trade-off. Is, that, is there AWS services to help with all that stuff or do you just need to configure uh, everything right yourself? Sh- uh, mm, I, don't know if, I don't know if they have a, a right sharding. Uh, probably Aurora more than likely, I would yeah. guess, would have something like that, but I, I, don't, I don't know. Like I said, I don't think you'd ever really need it, particularly in this country. And if you're hitting a scale, of, like that much scale, your business is probably pretty, like you're not needing the flexibility of Postgres anymore. Yeah. You can move to Cassandra once you once you hit that scale, mm. where the uh, sixty four CPU uh, Postgres instance Beautiful. isn't handling it for you. <laughs> well, that was the end of Juggling's uh, post there in Discord. Yeah. So thanks for that. Yeah, great comment. And if anyone else wants any, I'm glad that we're almost the same person. <laughs> you got quite a lot in common. I, I actually have. Are you sure this isn't your alias and you're just posting? I was very surprised that um, I don't see a lot of people saying anything like this. Like I don't see. I read a lot of hacker news and I read a lot of uh, like serverless forums, all this stuff. I don't see people uh, being critical of the the service itself or the framework. So certainly other people are having these problems. I don't yeah. think we're stupid. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm the only one doing it. So <laughs> I, I don't think I'm stupid typically. <laughs> well, hopefully there's other people out there and they join the Discord and start posting some of these questions. We can help each other out maybe, yeah. share a bit of knowledge. Well, I think uh, maybe people are doing more microservices with serverless, but uh, uh-huh. I'd say that's probably a poor choice for most companies in the first place. Yeah. Anyway. So a couple of things you've touched on. Well, the, do you want to talk about the, the load testing you've done? Load testing, Yarn uh, workspaces, yeah. where do we start? Um, Lambda containers. Yeah, so I, I sort of wanted to, uh, we're having issues with our build system just because of the amount of time that 
Yarn takes to install. Uh, my CI server is out in the middle of nowhere, essentially, right yep. now, because my brother moved. And I don't really want to stop using it. The connection to GitHub is fine, but hitting the NPM registry for some reason takes like, uh, we'll do a yarn install, mm-hmm. uh, even with a cache, like with the cache folder there. Yep. Uh, and it will take 60 minutes to install the packages. And I'd yep. say, uh, like, I try and keep a pretty light uh, amount of packages relative to most code bases I've worked in. Yep. I build more stuff than I do. Yeah, that's part. right. So it's very strange to me that's happening. Um, but uh, it, it does take a long time. The whole like linking phase at the end of Yarn and all that stuff, like working in a mono repo, uh, the more and more it scales. Uh, I, I'm working uh, as a contractor for another company and they have a Yarn workspace that has, I think, uh, like 90 something different workspaces. Yep. The actual like linking phase takes ages. Mm. So easy to get out of sync. So I was just uh, interested in trying Yarn V2 because they have something called Plug and Play, yep. which promises to solve all of the world's problems. So Yarn V1 and Yarn V2 are, are two totally different things, aren't they? Like, Yeah, yeah, mostly, yeah. 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 Uh, they try and... So y- you can use um, a different linker. So you could use the same like node modules resolution. You could actually just say use node modules yep. and then Yarn V2 will still like build out and use the same old algorithm. So it, it is configurable to use something. So hold on, back the, up, back yeah. up one step. Yeah, go. What's the fundamental differences between the two? Where, where do Yarn they one and two. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a new system, different commands, uh, prettier output in the console. Yep. Um, are you, if you're talking about the difference between plug and play and node modules. Is that what the differences are? So Yarn V2 has plug and play? Yeah, which is not just a Yarn thing. That's right. a specification. So NPM had a project that was deprecated because the lead developer rolled off apparently ah. um, that was supposed to implement plug and play as well. So ah. it's actually a specification. Apparently, this is what I read on the GitHub, GitHub issues. Right. Uh, I haven't seen the specification, but uh, apparently this is the way the, the JavaScript ecosystem is supposed to go in the future. From what I've read, okay, um, according to npm, yeah, e- according to npm yarn, all these things. Um, so, uh, oh, so did yarn and npm both have input into this? Yeah, I believe so. Okay, yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't read a, a news article about it. Right. I, that's what I read in GitHub like comments. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they're trustworthy. People don't lie on the internet. Well, especially not GitHub's me. owned by GitHub and npm are both owned by Microsoft. That's so true. Maybe they're shadow banning all the. That's possible. All the uh, comments that aren't in the line with what they want to do. Oh, which is plug and play. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's, it's pretty good. Um, Yarn has a system. What they actually recommend you to do is something that's very unique, uh, even for most languages, which is called no install, I believe, or zero install, mm-hmm. which is when you install packages, you actually commit the set, like the version of the package to Git or whatever. And actually, you actually commit the yarn binary itself so when someone opens uh your code base Mm -hmm. all of the packages when you do a git clone that's it that's the end of story you don't longer need any network calls all right so like me working on the train working on in the car working in a remote area Mm -hmm. works a lot better for me (laughs) so Mm -hmm. um so they store all of the packages as like the name of the package and the hash um, of it like the version, um, in a central like cache folder mm-hmm. if you're working with a, uh, with a workspace. Yep. And then they implement uh, the plug-and-play. You have to tell Node to use the plug-and-play require thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in like Node, 
it overrides the common JS require yep. system. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like a Webpack plugin. There's uh, yeah, a whole bunch of plugins for a lot of different build tools. Yep. So it actually just worked out of the box for create React app. Like it just, oh. bam, job done. Okay. Um, and when it does a require, instead of, I, I think when I, we, like we started working on this project I, I, and you, were, you asked me like, what can I learn or something like that? I said, oh, l- learn how the uh, like node modules it, like oh, how yeah. each package is resolved because yeah, it's do that. super confusing <laughs> and it's very important yeah. because it actually like it does heaps of like uh, file system checks yep. so it'll like check all right is it in this node modules no it'll recurse up the tree is it in this node modules is it a subfolder etc cetera, etc cetera. and yep. it'll like it, it does heaps of like file system calls to actually just tell you is this module there yeah it's not really ideal for a production system in the first place because mm. it should just say in prod at least, it should say, give me this code, here's that code, yep. right? Which is essentially what plug and play, uh, part of its objective is yep. to solve that. Um, it's not always faster. Uh, they, I, I was reading some, uh, uh, some of their benchmarks and there are specific cases where it's slower than the vanilla version, yep. but uh, like node modules resolution, but uh, in a workspace, it definitely feels a lot faster. The install phase takes two seconds instead of you know, 32 or yeah. like 15 minutes. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, uh, what else is interesting? Well, so do you need to, what's the migration path if you want to move from right. V1 to V2? So the difficulty with migrating to V2 and plug and play, yeah. if you use a workspace, you can actually say specifically for a folder, just use node modules. So if you have a, a particularly tricky workspace where it's like, you know, a lot of stuff isn't working and yeah. like it's just not running, you can actually just say use the node modules linker for this project and it'll yep. actually write node modules, uh, a folder with yep. modules inside of it. Um, the, the migration path otherwise is a lot of uh, packages. The only issue that I had was a lot of packages, uh, it's very strict, Yarn v2. So if a package depends on something, it's allowed to require it. If it does not depend on something and it's not in the peer dependencies and it's not in the dev dependencies, can't do anything with it. So if it hits a require, it actually throws an exception, which is a more normal behavior because it's actually like you get surprising behavior where like two, two modules where interact, that sort of thing, yep. or you have a dependency that's not declared. So you have to actually, you have to have a test suite for one <laughs> to run. Um, and then uh, you actually run it and you see there'll be like a thing, that, there's a thing that says a oh, module, for example, Chakra UI yep. uh, has accessed React DOM, but does not declare React DOM as a dependency. Yep. Um, so I had to like, for each of the Chakra UI ones, there's like a little thing at the root of the monorepo and you say Chakra UI also depends on React DOM. Ah. And so you just go through your tests yep. and you patch all those issues oh, okay. one, one by one by yep. one. Yep. Yep. And then there's probably about 15 of those. But do you think Chakra UI will make updates to accommodate that in the future? Is there anything yeah, they sure. can do? Yeah, for sure. There's an open issue, I believe. Oh, right. Yeah. But uh, it's really just because it's not something you'd see in a normal like test because node modules was just... Uh, like even our system, like I was using TS Node in a couple of places um, to just run stuff. And I was like, well, it's installed in one of them and it runs somehow. Yeah. So I just left it because it worked. But yeah. it's like it is actually a dependency in more than just that one system. Mm. It's like an undeclared secret hidden dependency. So, mm. so you have to fix all those things. It sort of fi- forces you to actually declare the entirety of your dependencies, which I don't think is bad. But isn't that better to, to yeah. declare? Yeah. 
what you want. But not everything just, in the syst- ecosystem has done that. That's the only issue. Yeah. So you actually have to sort of like half patch some some modules. Okay. It'd be good if there was like a registry, like you know, have you you have at types yep. for TypeScript. If yep. they had that for like Yarn oh, yeah. or pl- not Yarn, but just yep. plug and play, like yep. additional dependencies. Yeah, sure. Because like I feel like everyone has to do what I do, which is like name all of the Chakra UI submodules and then patch them. So do you think everyone will move to V2 at some stage or do you think some people have to stay on V1? Oh, for sure, yeah. Well, serverless just didn't use it. Like serverless would not allow me to use plug and play. Wow. Like serverless Other itself wouldn't boot. Serverless. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I wanted to use the cool new thing. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, serverless had to go. Fair enough. Yeah. But uh, it's much faster. The tests and everything just run like, instantly in ci that's the advantage what it used to take 15 20 minutes even when the build server was here now because like i actually commit the the modules with the code it actually just runs instantly so the ci takes no time at all it also removes the like runs on your machine versus runs on my machine it's interesting it's like we've gone from docker which was meant to solve that problem Mm. obviously didn't solve that problem for everything especially in node because you know Every time you have an issue with the project, I'm like, all right, can you type out what is yarn-v? What is npm-v? What is node-v? This attempts to solve some of that as well by actually packaging the binary for the the package manager alongside the the code base. So when you CD into it, it actually just like uses that yarn version. Anyway. So because because plug and play is a spec and we're talking yarn, is there an NPM version of plug and play? Yeah, it starts with a T. That's the one that was discontinued though. So I think they'll so why'd they try and do it again. It? Yeah. The lead developer got sick or something. Yeah, but why has no one picked it up? Like, are they abandoning know. it or? I have no idea. Okay. I don't know that much about the entire JavaScript ecosystem. It's like mm. my least favorite ecosystem. <laughs> <laughs> the one you work the most in. I know. <laughs> it's kind of gross, but it's, it's hard not to work in this ecosystem because mm. everyone knows it. Yeah. Well, hopefully you can step around some of the landmines that people come across. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I'll have to learn a bit more about workspaces. I mean, Well, workspaces set, we've been using. Yeah, you set that up from the beginning. I never really dived into how it works, like yeah. with the packages and all that kind of stuff. Mm. It was very complex, apparently, um, for, for Yarn 1, because uh, they had to resolve like what goes in each directory. Yeah. But uh, now, because uh, you have like the global resolver, it knows exactly what it, each package needs at all times. Okay, but you you moved one thing out of our um, packages recently. Yeah. So we've got like a landing marketing page, uh, which is built in Gatsby. Yeah. But you moved that out. Why? That's more of a like a uh, V1, Yarn workspace issue. Yeah. Uh, if I go into the entire detail, it's going to take 15 minutes. Yep. Essentially, because of the way the note... So they've gotten rid of hoisting, like the hoisting configuration. Who's, you, who's they? Yarn V2. Oh, right. So Yarn V2 doesn't have that. I don't know if you've seen the, the no hoist. Yep. And then I do at type slash jest yep. and like uh, testing library and all this because it conflicts with the other packages. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hoisting configuration was making it so that even though there were two packages that were the same version, so Chakra UI... Mm-hmm identical versions, Webpack was bundling two of Chakra UI for both of these different versions, specifically because of hoisting. So uh, that was the disappearing toasts. I deployed the app and uh, thought everything was dandy. And then I realized there's no toasts anywhere. (laughs) And that's because something in 
for some reason, there's two versions of Chakra being deployed yeah. in the same application. I don't even know how that's possible, mm. but because uh, we moved um, some stuff into a component library for a storybook. Mm. So anyway, that's that's a, the, the shortest yeah. version I can give. Yep, yep, yep. Well, I suppose it's good that you got that escape hatch to to get out of it when you need to. Well, you just didn't. The no, the hoisting. Yeah. Well, now the the hoisting is just like because it's very confusing. Like it would be very difficult to explain to people yeah. and no one really got how it worked. Like you can read through the GitHub issues is actually what they say in the change log. They just said either you hoist everything or you hoist nothing essentially oh, to the okay. root and you share the packages or you don't share the packages. Gotcha. But it's not really important because, uh, you know, you have the, the resolver now as well. You don't have to worry about hoisting because Yarn knows exactly what version to give you. It doesn't have to go through a whole bunch of sim links. Yep to find like what is the version inside of this folder and this folder and this folder. So is plug and play similar to, well, you said when we use plug and play, you could just point to a repo and say, get the code. Is that right? Just get clone and then run. Yeah. So then uh, do you have to have tagged versions of all the code in the repo or? No, there's, uh, what do you mean? Like, you know, when you push code to a repo, you can like tag a version. Oh, that's unrelated. Yeah. Unrelated, That'd be about, it? yeah. That'd be about, uh, so it, it, it if you're talking about the packages saved, that's the NPM version mm -hmm. that it, it saves it under. Yep. And if you're talking about the code itself, there's no reason, like there's no change at all. Ah, okay. Because, I mean, you have commit hashes and the if you want to like pick a specific branch, you yep. pick a branch, right? Yep. So, yep. Yeah, SHAs, sorry, not hashes. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Different systems. The, the, the released like version tagging is more for like libraries or companies that are, uh, yeah, weird. <laughs> And so is this more, how does Go do all this? Is it similar to like the way Go does it? It's a bit fragmented in Go, unfortunately. Is it? Yeah. Uh, it was the last time I saw. I don't know if there's been that much improvement in, in the uh, package management lifecycle. Mm -hmm. There were actually like four different package managers the last time I was using oh. Go. I can't remember which one I used. Uh, the language, uh, the, I don't know, the committee decided on one version mm -hmm. of the package management and I think they're moving forward with that. Yep. But it's like a very, it's not the ideal circumstance oh. yeah yeah i thought go worked it all out no i don't think so uh -huh. maybe they have now uh but like two years ago no uh -huh. not not so much okay and what about um does deno still use node modules i don't know maybe yeah uh -huh. well they they have the like you point to a repository yeah which interestingly uh, i think yarn works like, like yarn v2 has as well uh -huh. you can use git to point to a to a package as well. So uh -huh. they sort of do the same thing uh, Dino wants to do with its package Dino, management, yeah. which is not just like name a, a thing and it goes to NPM, but like point at any any location. Mm. Yeah. They also got rid of some of the weird workspace stuff, but that's, yeah. But if you can point at any location, does that open you up to more security vulnerabilities or are they, are they already existent within NPM as itself? Yeah, probably existent within NPM. I mean, yeah. how hard is it to publish an NPM package? Yeah, that's right. You can already think of all the secure, like people's Bitcoin wallets being stolen <laughs> from under them by <laughs> NPM packages. So yeah, that's right. It's not really. Yeah. Not really, it means that you don't have to use NPM, which is like a centralized package management system, mm. which is uh, beneficial in my mind. Yeah. Also means you don't have to like have a token login as a user. You could actually just use a private Git repository. What if tomorrow Microsoft's like, okay, you have to pay... A dollar now for NPM. Yeah. I quit. <laughs> <laughs> I quit the internet. Yeah, I'm, no, not the internet. I'm just not going to use NPM. Yeah. Like most people. Can you get around it, but? 
get around what using npm like yeah of not course. having npm yeah yeah you can build oh, your could own you do it tomorrow but yeah what okay. do you mean yeah okay well the issue is like we have all these packages that are, are hosted only there mm. that'd be the only struggle yeah but uh, someone, someone would probably host them pretty quickly. In yeah, it wouldn't spot. take long. Yeah. People would be willing to donate to get a, an open source, like free version of that quickly. Yeah. And then a lot of companies wouldn't have any, uh, a lot of well-built companies wouldn't have an issue because they'd have something like Nexus, mm. which is like an artifact uh, repository, yeah. which would already be proxying NPM and like serving those. Uh-huh. So like when you would install a module, it would yeah. save it in Nexus. So okay. you wouldn't even have an issue. Gotcha. For a while, until you wanted to upgrade. But I, I would like, yeah, how would you upgrade without NPM, I suppose? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bit of a rabbit hole. Yeah. But anyway. We've, we've got so many rabbit holes this week. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing you said you were doing was the Lambda container stuff. Yeah. You brought up the Lambda containers just then again. Well, uh, it was all part of one thing. I've just got a branch that's like uh, fixing some of the tech stuff that like really fucking ears. Grinds my gears. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, one of them is I just got rid of Webpack out of the... Uh, oh, did you? Mm. I don't want Webpack. I'm done. I'm done with Webpack. Oh, wow. Mm. It's such a uh, silly thing to have to do. It also reduces a lot of... Uh, I did a, some performance. So we, we hit a... Like our cold starts were getting up to about, what, five, six seconds, which is like not ideal because yep. like randomly you would get so it, without the provision concurrency, like on every 20th call, if you were making enough calls, you just hit a, you know, a five second loading spinner or whatever. So hold on, can we go back one step? Even what? though most of our API serves in 20 milliseconds. Yeah. Just to make that perfectly clear. Yeah. But uh, what was Webpack actually doing? Uh, what did you have it doing? Well, serverless. In, so I don't know if you remember. You but serverless Webpack. That, that when, when, when I... Uh, took over the API from you. <laughs> it didn't deploy. I don't know if you remember that. Because of two that. reasons. I definitely would have deployed on my machine. It didn't. <laughs> I mean, I love I that you say that. <laughs> Not your fault. It's like limitations that have been arbitrarily imposed by AWS. Yep. They have a limit of 250 megabytes of Oh, that's code. right. I remember you had to fix that for me. No, I do remember. Yeah, which I had to fix with uh, serverless webpack. Yeah. I'll come back to that in a second. And then also we hit the 200 resource in CloudFormation That's right. issue. Yep. So both of those things I never want to experience again in my life because yep. they were just a, a rabbit hole of wasted time mm. trying to fix like half-built plugins with no tests. Yep. So I actually had to clone um, in order to get a mono repo working with serverless. I had to clone serverless bundle, <laughs> which is like a wrapper around serverless webpack. And then configure that, which I just think is like original sin, like me having to to manage that in the first place. Mm. So I had all the like code someone else had written just like cloned down into my mono repo yep. that I, I had like slightly tweaked and patched just to get working. Mm. Yeah. So I've had to do that a few times in my life. Each time I'm just very angry at the people who did it. So Webpack was just there to bundle all the Lambda functions. So it, what it does is it actually, it, re, it reduced the size because it checks which dependencies you actually need, right? Okay. And then it would set, like it says, oh, this dependency isn't used, this one, this one, this one, and it bundles them out. Uh-huh. Or this, you know, there's tree shaking in tree Webpack as well. Yep. So it was doing tree shaking. Yep. And so it got us down to about five megabytes of, uh, of uh, unbundled code. Which is a good thing. Which is good, mm. yeah. But... Uh, the thing with Webpack is it's transpilation, which means like what runs in in the cloud, it doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily what runs on your system. Mm. 
So uh, without, so I, I did actually get it to work with Webpack, but I had to make all these like, I just hate all the workarounds you have to do because I had to like build the code and then point to that code and then run the compiled code instead of like just using TS node and running the server like a normal human being yeah. uh, or just running the TSC compiled code, which is like a way better option. Yeah. Um, so I was sick of that as well. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get rid of Webpack. Um, but because it's in a container image, you no longer have the 250 megabyte uh, size limit. So doesn't matter. you got 10 gigs to, to fill on, with node on. modules. Hold on. Yeah, go. What happened? What do you mean? Container image? Yeah. You, so you created your own container image? For the, yeah, to do the Lambda stuff. Oh. So instead of like trying to fit the code into 250 megabytes, I just use the, the uh, container. So you push the, you create your own container image and you push it up to AWS Container Registry. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. ECR. ECR. Elastic Container Registry, is that what it is? I would guess it would be. <laughs> it must be elastic. Expensive Container <laughs> Registry. Yeah. So you put it there, and then do you have to tell your Lambda container to use that image? or uh, Lambda container? Sorry, I do don't you think have to tell yeah. Lambda yeah. to use that image? Uh, so I'll tell you the CLI command. Yeah. Uh, so in Ansible, I run, I, I do the build, TSC, and then I copy that out. Yep. Docker build with the Docker file. It's just using their vanilla AWS thing. Yep. And then AWS update code uh, sends it the image URL from ECR. Yep. And then update configuration updates environment variables. That's, uh -huh. that's it. Okay. Does that make sense? So you're actually, but isn't there restrictions around what containers you can run no. on Lambda? Uh, no, actually, luckily. It's actually very good. Uh, it's a good decision. So they have instead an API. Uh -huh. So there's uh, something called the runtime path. I'm going to, I don't remember what the names of them are. One of them is called the runtime path, which is what manages how the container invokes your function. Yep. And it is like an HTTP API that your container has to serve. And there's actually like an HTTP call to like say invoke and then give it minus D, which is the event, like pass in the, the data to, to the callback. Yep. It could be anything. Because it's in a container, it could literally be a shell script. Mm -hmm. Like you don't, you're not limited to the runtime supported by AWS anymore. Oh, when so did that change? This was with the container update, the like container images they supported. When did that come through? Yeah, it'd be hard old? for you to have used it because I don't think it came out until we started this project. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's Maybe. why I'm not aware of it. Mm. But uh, so you have your code in a location and then you have uh, the runtime. And that the runtime is, uh, I've just used the one that AWS provides. Yep. And then you just say, this is where my handler is. And it's actually the thing they use under the hood, which is just like the vanilla uh, AWS Linux instance. Yep. And then point it at the code and uh, it takes care of everything else. It runs the server and then it like calls your code and tells it to slow down and all that so stuff. So you can arbitrarily set the limit of the size of the container or like what's the max container? Size? 10 gigs. 10 gig. So that's, that's a lot. Uh, the size to put in perspective, like, uh, the base image, I think, which is just like Amazon Linux is 300 megs yeah. or something. Um, yeah. So it's, it's not too bad. Uh, yeah. that's really big, I think. So I would rather use Alpine, but I'm not yeah. going to write my own, uh, like interface yeah. at this point. Um, like a standard node web packed one would be like, you know, 20 meg or 40 meg, something like that. 
So when you... Actually, that's Go I'm thinking of. So <laughs> never mind, back that up. Definitely bigger for Node. So those benefits you spoke about before of the... Um, like web packing the, the modules and removing dependencies mm. that aren't needed. Yeah. And then also the tree shaking stuff. Yeah. That gives you performance benefits, right? Because obviously you've got less code. Everything's a trade-off. Okay, so... So I'll give you an example. Yeah, yeah. We're doing a macro lambda. So yep. one of the performance optimizations I wanted to make yep. was to... So we, we I, I just put everything, like literally even the image processing is in this lambda. Uh-huh. But uh, there was, it was a bit of a slowdown because uh, like you, it has to require all that stuff, right? Yep. In Webpack, everything's like required immediately. Uh-huh. So it has to parse and load the entire file and then execute. Yep. Whereas now I've actually have a, a layer which is like a, a lazy... Lam- a Lambda layer? No, no, sorry. Uh, like a code layer. Okay, yep. Um, I would never use a Lambda layer. Okay. But uh, there's like a code layer that actually has like a lazy require. Yep. So only when the, that handler is invoked will that code be loaded. Oh, right. So like the router and the database connection is set up on initialization, but the actual code isn't that for that specific endpoint isn't required until it's run. Mm. Because of the way node module, like uh, sorry, node resolution works, once that's required, you don't have to load it again. So if I make two of the same calls, I don't have the like, it's like a half cold start. Yep. You're like belay- delaying half of the cold start until that code is required. Yep. So if you do the health check, like the cold start time is next to none, yep. right? But if you do the like image processor, it has yep. to require sharp and start the background worker threads. So uh-huh. It's a little slower. Okay. So, so you, when you, when you, my, why that is, is because it, Webpack bundles everything into one file, yep. right? But like Node can actually like lazily sort of require some stuff if, if you do it. What about correctly. the tree, ca- tree shaking stuff? But well, if you're not, the, the like co- is, is, are you it, missing it, out on that benefit? Or? Well, because it's not a compiled language, yep. this is one of the reasons why JavaScript is faster to start on AWS mm-hmm. or in functions yep. as a service yep. than compiled languages is because the compiled language has to be totally loaded. Yep. Whereas JavaScript can compile just like one file yep. or just well, interpret one file yep. and then run that if that's all that's required. Mm-hmm. And it won't require down the tree of dependencies. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's not necessarily faster. Oh, okay. For a web app, it makes perfect sense because there's there's not really many times when you would need to lazily require code that is in the bundle. Mm-hmm. They the lazy requiring in like Webpack and like if you have a website mm-hmm. is you would lazily require like a, some a page if yep. it has like an editor on it, right? Yep. You would lazy require require at the router level, mm-hmm. but that would be totally different because that code wouldn't be alongside. Yeah, you need to bundle in packages. Yeah. So do you have to manually configure all that now? Configure what? Like all these manual requires. All these requires. These no, la- I just wrote a code requires. generator. Oh, okay. So I like from the beginning, I just named everything. Um, so I, I, I just like do stupid code generation um, because like it's easier than doing it manually. And like if something changes, like it changes easily. Yep. So from the beginning of the project, I've named all of the handlers with a dot handler prefix. Uh, suffix because I knew I would do code generation with them eventually. Yep. So to build the router, I just find, I use a module called glob, mm-hmm. glob find all of the paths to yep. everything that is a handler, uh-huh. pull the, build a JSON file of all those yep. and then keep load that into the, the front oh. essentially. So, and then it has the import path. Mm-hmm. So it will lazily require the handler when it's needed, but I don't have to maintain any of that. That's just like code gen. So mm-hmm. I built that once. I never have to look at it again. Yep.
that makes sense? Yeah, I like it. It's good. <laughs> so it does give you a decent... So I ran uh, the Ali, A-L-I, is the load uh, load uh, testing tool I used. Yep. Just very simple. All you do is you give it an endpoint and a body and a method, and it'll just gives you a really good graph of like what's what like the max uh, time is, what the minimum time is, etc. So uh, it went from... I think the max execution time we had with the old system, which was Yarn V1 and Webpack, was seven seconds maximum time, mm-hmm. and the minimum and the max time after I had lazy required and gotten rid of Webpack and used the container image was like four seconds, which is actually like back to the early days of the project. Yeah. Until uh, AWS blocks you on something next week, and then you're <laughs> like, "No, oh, fuck this! I'm rebuilding this too." did i waste that much time with the episode ranting (laughs) i didn't feel like it took that long no it was good i'm so sorry but i feel like i was really going off on so many tangents but so much good stuff yeah well Well, people have to talk on the discord a weekend to you know learn some new stuff i like to do that sometimes it's good for the brain it's good for the soul i get bored gotta keep my brain running but all the people on Discord, hop on and ask a few questions if you want to know more about the serverless stuff or the plug and play or the yarn. Or ask the, me all sorts of questions. Maybe I, you just want to know what James done on the weekend. That's all. I have an IQ of maybe over a hundred. Just don't any, ask anything non-technical. No, no soft skills. <laughs> we publish on Wednesdays, or oh, it is Wednesday. We're going to publish today. Well, that'll keep everyone happy. That's so good. Uh, rate us on iTunes no one still fucking rated us on iTunes (laughs) (laughs) it's gonna happen soon actually don't rate because I'm afraid you'll give me one star (laughs) goodbye